Hey girlies, welcome to the third episode of Crisis Twink, the podcast where we ring the alarm about cultural emergencies, whether it's a flop album, an insane headline, a forgotten classic, or even a problematic fave, we're going to revive it and make sure it gets the medical assistance it so desperately needs. My name is Drew Haskins, and I am the only twink who can save a culture in crisis. Joining me today is dear friend and TV writer, John McDonough. Hi, John. Hi. Hello. Oh my gosh. How are you today? I'm good. We're, we're living life. This pandemic is coming to an end hopefully soon, and uh, I'm excited to see human beings again. I haven't seen the phrase like pandemic senioritis being thrown around a lot. And that's yeah. definitely like how it feels for sure. Very Especially much. as we're two vaccinistas at this point and we are yes. uh, Dolly's children. As I <laughs> Absolutely. Are you a Moderna girl? I'm a Moderna girl. Okay. I am too. I actually don't know that many people who got Pfizer or, I mean, definitely not Johnson and Johnson. No, but that's a different podcast. That is an absolutely different podcast. <laughs> We are not, we are not the immunology podcast, so we cannot do that today. Um, no, I mean, it seems like a, it seems like summer has sprung though, which is kind of nice. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. And it, and, um, it's nice to be entering a, like, I want to be outside in a way that's not like, this is the only way I'm allowed to leave my house and see other people. That is just like the weather's nice and I'm going to make out with random people I see at the beach. Uh, no it's that's that's the mood that's the vibe for sure I don't think I can do another park hang I hate parks now which is sad it is sad because LA I we we are both based out of LA for the reader um LA is such a good park city and you wouldn't really think that but I feel like I have seen every park on the east side of Los Angeles at this point and I'm ready to spread my wings go up the coast go to Santa Barbara go to down the coast. I don't know what's down the coast. Me, Orange County. I don't want to go down the coast. We're going actually. to Mexico. <laughs> yeah, I've never been to Mexico. That would be a true, a true dream. Remember yeah. international travel? I do. I do. And she may be a, a little, a little ways away, but we will dream fondly of we'll her see. return. We'll see. I'll. For me, Idaho is international, so maybe I will book a flight and uh. Get out there. Have some potatoes. <laughs> Well, I think it's a good time for our first segment. We are going to play Go Call the Governor. So I am going to present you, John McDonough, with three cultural scenarios from recent and ancient history. And you're going to decide whether or not the governor needs to be called. There are absolutely no wrong answers, but your choice is binary. So let's play. Okay, I think I understand. All right. And if you have any questions, I guess you can ask them, but I don't think it's, it's a that simple kind of game. A simple game. A simple game. Okay. Zack Snyder wanted Batman versus Superman to be called Son of Sun and Night of Night. Does the governor need to be called? Honestly, I think the governor needs to be called only because I don't know why they didn't let him do that. Like Okay, interesting. I think we I think DC's primary mistake with Zack Snyder was not leaning in to how ridiculous he is. And that's the kind of energy I wish they'd brought to the whole franchise. Don't you think that's an instant meme waiting to happen though? 
Yeah, and that's how you get people's butts in seats. They could have had the Snyder Cut meme before the Snyder Cut existed. No, you're absolutely right. Are you a Snyder Cut devotee? I don't, I'm not a big DC fan. I just thought this headline was so funny to me. Um, I have not seen Batman versus Superman or either version of the Justice League because I've decided I'm too old to watch movies I know I'm not going to like. Right. Um, But I am uh casually interested in all of the debacle and have strong opinions <laughs> are you so i've only seen two snyder movies i guess um being watchmen and what's the the like not it's not lesbian but it's not not lesbian sucker you know? punch yeah sucker punch i've seen sucker punch and watchmen isn't as bad as to me isn't as bad as people think it is a remembered being. I think the Damon Lindelof show is obviously so much better, though we've talked about that mm-hmm. before. Yeah, I think Zack Snyder is a filmmaker who is fine, who yeah. thinks he's great. And the problems arise when other people start playing along with the idea that he's great. And that's the kind of thing that when he wants to do something like call a movie Son of Sun and Night of Night, they're like, you can't do that. When they should be like, nope, this, this is the Zack Snyder we hired. It's interesting that he's gained this sort of auteur status over the years when none of his movies are, I mean, I'm sure none of them have over like a 65 on Metacritic. Not that like that's- Maybe 300, but- um, Oh yeah, I forgot he did 300, I guess. And that sort of set off like this, I mean, but though that's kind of a Frank Miller ripoff in a lot of ways. And he's sort of a Frank Miller ripoff of a director. Right. He does- I like a sucker punch is very Frank Miller in its palette though. I don't think, well, I don't know actually. I mean, it could be more or less tasteful than Frank Miller, honestly. Like Frank Miller is not exactly, I mean, Watchmen's a pretty complex product, but like, I think I don't they have know. a similar obsession with violence. Yeah. But I think Zack Snyder nominally respects women. I would like to think that. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Sucker Punch is this like gonzo feminist Fantasia or anything, but it's definitely bad, but very entertaining. And I love it when Jenna Malone is in any movie at all. So Mm -hmm. we love it when she is booked and busy. Um, Okay, let's move on to the next cultural scenario. Putting peanut butter on celery. Does the governor need to be called? No. So you're, pe- you're, you support this? Yeah, let people live. Don't you think celery is a weird vehicle for peanut butter? Um, so I think one thing that we've all learned in the past year dealing with this pandemic is how lovely it is to do things that have no actual scientific benefit, but feel like they do. Yeah. And eating celery is always going to be one of those things. It feels like it's really good for you when it's like, whatever. And especially when you put peanut butter on it, we've thrown that out the window, but I'm going to eat peanut butter anyway. If I put it on celery and can get that sort of good juice of I'm being healthy because I'm eating it on celery as opposed to right some other vehicle why not I it just always seems so like we got brainwashed as children into putting peanut butter on celery because our parents didn't want us eating more Ritz crackers or Triscuits or what have you but I just never find it 
it it I think the celery is like watered down weirdly by the peanut butter and vice mm-hmm. versa because that's I like celery true. on its own I would just eat celery straight up I think wow I mean that's a bold claim that I don't know if I can support but um does the presence of raisins giving it the beautiful ants on a log appearance affect your opinion I like that less just as a raisin hater myself word but I do I think if you're an adult eating peanut butter and celery, that's acceptable. I think if you're an adult eating ants on a log, you need to go back to childhood regression therapy to figure that out. Very true. Yeah. All right. Let's do our third scenario, which is RuPaul's Drag Race All-Star 6 is a Paramount Plus exclusive and will not be shown on VH1. Does the governor need to be called? Probably, um, I, I think maybe like a committee needs to be assembled to really look closer at this issue. Like I'm yeah. not sure that it's a problem, but we definitely need to make sure it's not a problem. Um, the real tea that we all know is that all of us have managed to watch Drag Race for years without having cable, right. whether that's going to bars, whether that's methods that I won't disclose on air because I don't want that loophole to be closed. Um, we've all found a way. and. Um, I think the same will be true of Paramount Plus being this way, like get a bunch of your girls together and take turns doing free trials and you'll get through Mm -hmm. it. But like, also people probably deserve to make money off the content they create. And if their way of making that money is to get people to actually pay for a streaming service where you can also watch the rest of the series, that may be fine. So like, I wish... I don't love that Drag Race is on VH1 and Drag Race All-Stars is on Paramount Plus and yeah. Drag Race UK Canada down under España are on WoW Presents Plus. Um, I know it's WoW Presents, mm-hmm. uh, but but I um, I think I'm fine with them choosing to use Drag Race to get to Paramount Plus. I just wish there was more consistency. I agree with that. And I also wish that I said this a few years ago too, when Drag Race proper moved to Friday nights instead of whatever weekday night it was already on. I Mm kind of wish they would take gay bars into consideration again. Yes. Just because, I mean, most gay bars I'm sure are already paying for cable so they can show Drag Race and all that stuff. And when they moved it from uh, whenever it was Tuesdays to Fridays, like there that's one less day that a drag bar is going to have a ton of traffic right like, people are gonna, gonna go to a gay bar on friday night anyway people are gonna go to act bar like it doesn't matter on a friday on a tuesday who's going to a gay bar unless you have like a specific reason to but now they have to pay for an additional streaming service on top of the cable just to you know, get everything squared away. And I, I, the service is not that expensive from what I can tell, but mm-hmm. I don't know. It just seems a little. It also takes the appointmentness yeah. away from it too. Like um, if Drag Race is dropping on Friday, it's going to drop at midnight or like four in the morning or whatever. And like, yeah. it's not like Drag Race is on at eight, come to the bar at eight. It's like the bar may say, we're going to show Drag Race at this time, but you may have already watched it. I think it takes some of the appointmentness, and that's true both for people who like going to watch it at the bars, which is the ideal way to watch RuPaul's Drag Race, and people who like watching on their own. Like it is no longer a thing we're gonna all watch together, or at least separated by the coasts. And um, 
doubly so it's going to create more animosity about people tweeting spoilers. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I guess we're recording this the week that the season 13 finale is airing. Who do you want to win? Um, I think it's Simone and it's not close. Um, Yeah. But I I see and appreciate the calls for a double win with Got Mick. I think Mick is an incredible queen and has had such a great journey. And I think she had the strongest performance in the penultimate episode, as much as that matters or doesn't. But I think that Simone is just so clear and strong in her character. And some of what's on my mind is I feel like Got Mick could come back to All-Stars and show me a level of refinement that I didn't see now. I think Simone is there. Like it is, it is a completed package and it has been since she walked in the workroom. And I think it would be downright criminal not to give her the win. I think I agree with you pretty completely. I mean, I, I love Got Mick, like truly Mm -hmm. love Got Mick. And I think they were so consistent across this entire season. Um, Didn't really have a lot of lows in the way that Simone did but Simone really does seem like a queen of the moment Mm -hmm. and her branding and aesthetic is so strong like she said Ebony Enchantress the moment she walked into the workroom and every single episode she reminded you of that yeah it's really interesting how the difference between like track record and completeness feeling of the package and um like, because, yeah, Gottmik never lip-synced, Rosé only lip-synced when she was in the top. Like, those things are impressive, but at the same time, both of those queens feel like there's something to refine, where even yeah. with Simone's failings, I'm not, I don't have that feeling towards her. Um, and also, I'm so excited for Rosé to lose and come back on All-Stars with a chip on her shoulder and be insane. I think that's going to be a great run for her. I agree. I thought we were going to get more insanity out of her, honestly, just because... I mean, like, the rest of her drag lineage extended is, like, Jan and Alexis Michelle, who are both, you know, so high-strung, like, to let's just say that. And Rosé was remarkably chill to the point where she was almost boring. Almost, yeah. And I, I... She is the person who I am most interested to see. Like after watching yourself on TV all season and seeing how people reacted to you on TV all season, doing well, she hasn't really missed. Like what is going to happen to your brain when they inevitably invite you to come back to this show and you inevitably say yes? I am excited to find out. She's either going to be an early out on some all-star season or she's going to get like Chad Michaels to the top. Like just Mm -hmm. extremely professional, competent queen who deserves it I guess yeah yeah which is always an arc I like seeing I would love to see Candy Muse win an all-star season I will say that as America's number one musinista I am wow who owns an arrogant necklace I think Candy Candy Muse Muse. might be America's number one musinista in a way that I admire and respect if you're not high off of your own supply as a drag queen you're not doing. doing it right yeah yeah I have, like, my feelings about Candy, I think she's incredibly talented. I'm so Mm -hmm. glad she's on the show. She's been making good TV this whole time. I don't know why people are mad about that. Um, I sometimes feel about her that she, like, I don't know her, is my little sister that I want to be like, you don't have to always do it versus someone. Like, you're allowed to 
to just exist in this moment. You don't have to like actively do things, but um, I still love her and think she makes great TV. And uh, it's I also can't wait for her. What will be historic All-Stars 1? Yes. <laughs> On All-Stars 12, she'll be, she'll win the crown and win it twice. I, I don't know. I, the past few seasons of Drag Race have been so RuPaul's best friends race to mm-hmm. me that I do really appreciate the level of combativity, but also humor that Candy brings. Like, yeah. I think, I mean, the Tamisha and Candy fight to me was the most memorable Peak. moment of the season. Yeah. I Though, think the I mean, season that was... has been that fight some good talking heads, many of which came from Candy Muse and then great runways. And that's really what this season has been. Yeah. The performances themselves have not been especially memorable outside of, I thought this was a great snatch game, Mm -hmm. but like, I don't need to see another Rusical or these like, like honey, I shrunk the queen, Henny, I shrunk the queens. I'm sorry. Um, was not for me either. Hire good writers and like, let them just be funny. Don't make them be over the top. Like there, there is camp that is not insanity. There's a way yeah. to do sort of intentional camp or unintentional camp um, preview for later in the episode, maybe. But um, it it's weird that they always go for the same, like, well, I'm falling down. Yeah. And it's like, let the Queens be funny in different ways, at least to like mix it up, especially if we're getting two scripted comedy challenges no, Which you the got challenges are also scripted in a season, like mix it up. Right. I it also on drag race, the humor really seems to only be between the two poles of like slapstick fart humor or these sort of older queer camp references to properties that I'm assuming a lot of people watching drag race right now actually have not seen. Yeah, I mean, the Shantae, you stay sashay away. Being a reference is a thing that I think that there is a large group of drag race perform or not performers, um, viewers yeah. that don't even know that's a reference. Like it's it things have become like that's just a reference to a thing drag queens say, and it's like no, but it's also a reference to this. And um, and all those like there were a lot of Betty Davis mm-hmm. quotes and like Mommy Dearest quotes on this season. I mean, and every season of Drag Race that I guarantee ninety percent of the show's current younger skewing audience does not get. And I think those are funny to people who understand them. But I think if you just wrote something that's this like absurdist, surreal, almost adult swimmy sketch, you'd yeah. probably get better results or just hire, let the queens write it themselves. Yeah, hire a funny sketch writer to write a funny sketch, pay them and <laughs> you have the money, you have the money. Um, and that's sweet Viacom can... CBS coin. Yeah. Yeah. And also pay the queens to prepare their drag. And um, yeah, just like you, you, you have the ability to make this something more interesting and I'll just yeah. mix it up. And like, I don't need a musical next season. I honestly don't need a stand up comedy challenge because Mm-mm. I find that so it is such a specific skill that yeah. is so different. I liked the one woman show version of it because it sort of allowed it was really like, how are you on the mic as opposed to specifically like, are you a good stand-up? But and you're um, showing creativity and the kinds of art that you do on a day-to-day basis. Like not every com- not every queen is like a comedy queen, a pageant queen, like that kind of shit. It's yeah. 
like like take crystal method last season like she does this sort of gonzo clown drag very well and drag race as a show is not really constructed to show that yes and i think the more opportunities to let people be themselves also it will create a realm wherein we are not like the thing about the roast that is particularly egregious to me besides the fact that it's a stand-up comedy challenge and that's a specific skill is like every roast there are the same performers there's the comedy queen who is supposed to excel and does there's the comedy queen that misses a little bit but it's probably fine there's the person who is trying to be funny but is actually super mean there's the person who you didn't realize was funny and really mm -hmm. shocked like it's it's the same roles that get filled right. every time and like the specifics of what's good or bad about those people change but like it's always that and it just leaves you very like i've seen this episode before i would like to see a different episode and especially if you're doing 10 seasons of drag race per calendar year like you oh, yeah. need to shake up the formula a little mm -hmm. bit mm -hmm. but what well, we're talking about another flawed show today what yeah. is the cultural emergency you are bringing to the table um, I'm I'm giving this sort of the the subheading of how do you solve the problem of Joss Whedon. Mm -hmm. um, I think there's sort of two pieces of this. There's mm -hmm. the 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 now and the before, <laughs> um, and uh, it is legitimately challenging in a world where we are finally um, seeing people face consequences when those people are people whose body of work is respected. Yeah, and. Um, I think Joss Whedon is a very interesting case in that you kind of have all of the versions of it. You have the, the property that is beloved and it's probably deserved. You have the property that's beloved and has aged poorly. And you have the work he's trying to do now that just doesn't have the same magic or maybe just that magic isn't for this moment. Right. Um, and I find it a really fascinating, messy puzzle. So describe your relationship with Whedon's works. Like how, what was your gateway and where did you go? Um, we started with Buffy. I think yeah. like many people did. Um, there is a generation of television writers, especially genre television writers of which I am, who will say that a lot of the reason they write television now is because of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Mm -hmm. And I am one of those people. I'm not ashamed to say that even now. Um, it, Buffy was hugely important to me as a young mm -hmm. person. Um, I loved it. I And then from there, kind of spread out into Angel. And I watched Firefly and, like, adored it. And um, watched Dollhouse, which no one did, but I did. Um, and kind of after he left television, I think my relationship with him changed a little bit just in terms of... Um, I don't think he sparks as well as a feature director as he did at the time. And then now it's really interesting to be able to look at him returning to television and be like, is it that he doesn't spark as well? Or is it that I'm not interested in what he's selling anymore? Right. Um, and then also like Joss's flaws to some extent have always been readily apparent. And um it's interesting now, though, to look at them, like, knowing that thing that made you feel icky is icky, like, that was a correct instinct, what you were responding to on the screen, and, like, what do you do with it is <laughs> a really mm -hmm. complicated feeling. As, yeah, so the show that's precipitating this conversation today is The Nevers, which is his new HBO venture that he created, directed, and wrote 
most if not all of this first chunk of six episodes that's being i think some of some other people wrote the scripts but i think yeah. he's the director for maybe all six all at them. least these first two um and was actively the executive producer of yeah it, it's a very weedony show and i think at least after watching the first two episodes, without getting into too many spoilers for people who haven't seen it, I think having the bloat and budget of cable and subscription TV has really both watered down, overstuffed, and kind of highlighted his flaws in a way that network TV, I think, would be, it would be forgiven a little bit more easily. There the 42 minute runtime of a network television show is a double-edged sword because it makes you like it is limiting but it also like forces you to make some choices and there's so much in this show that is like there was a good scene in here you just stayed in it too long yeah. or you got so obsessed with this or I actually didn't need another round of shots of all the people acting like and I think that the runtime is doing him a disservice in yeah. many ways and I think that's a problem endemic to a lot of HBO shows in, in particular. I think mm -hmm. The Nevers is being set up as a very explicit Game of Thrones successor. Which is wild. That, yeah. That's what they thought they were getting. Yeah, especially, I mean, because I don't remember the names of the game. The Benioff and Weiss, those are the Game of yes. Thrones guys. Yeah, they are very different sorts of creators than than Whedon because Whedon I mean talking about auteurs like he's as close to a TV auteur as we have well that's right like now, a thing had. that is kind of true and kind of not mm -hmm. like um the thing I will say about this show and any television show and is the sort of like is it weird for me to go back and watch Buffy now? Should it make me feel gross? Is that television is made by a ton of people and that's true in movies too but it is more true in TV and especially like at the height of Whedon, he had three shows on the air. Like he was not, there were other voices in the space that made those shows what they were and helped sort of contribute it. And people who he's continued to work with. Yeah. So like, and it's the thing about the Nevers now, like I think it's a legitimate ethical question to say knowing what I know about Joss Whedon is this a show I'm willing to watch. And A, he's no longer on it, which we'll get to and yeah. B, um, other people were creative voices in the show. And I think some of the more successful creative voices in the show were not Joss's voice. Yeah. And like it is, this show, The Nevers is very interesting to me because it is just so him. It is yeah. everything he does well and everything he does poorly. And it's has billions of dollars, not billions. Yeah. But, um, an insane amount of money. And I do like the production values of it. And I mean, I'm not a big steampunk guy just as a concept. I do think it veers into tackiness so often. And I really cannot think about it without thinking of those Portlandia sketches about the steampunk convention at like the airport hotel. Yeah. But he does add a big sense of wonder to the show. And I think mm -hmm. the Victorian setting actually works with the story he's trying to tell very I agree. well. Um and the acting's obviously superb. I mean, so far. a thing I have realized becoming a writer myself and also just like with a more adult eye looking at Whedon's work is that 
one of his great skills, and whether this is him or working with good casting directors, is he is a very, very good caster. Um, he has a unique talent of, there, there are like some Joss Whedon roles should not work, but he finds these incredible actors who are super charming, who can sell it. Um, and The Nevers, I feel like is an example of that. I think the lead character should be incredibly obnoxious and mm -hmm. I am not annoyed by her. I like her. I think she's charming. Um, and it's it's very impressive to watch him strike that again. Well, you say strike it again, and I do think that he has struck this specific chord many times now. Like mm -hmm. he, I mean, obviously Buffy, Buffy was so revolutionary by dint of it being about this ass-kicking female protagonist who's also deeply sensitive mm -hmm. and flawed and quote-unquote feminist in, in an era in which there were really very few TV and film properties about that but you can see that character in a lot of his work since then yeah like and, in, and in a lot of other people's work I think right it's but, very influential but it's something that he repeats a lot right when Joss was writing Buffy he was the only person by writ of being allowed to do it because he is a straight white man who comes from a Hollywood family um who was writing a complicated kick-ass woman in the genre space like I mean, mm -hmm. there were other examples, but I don't think any of them were as holistic as Buffy and were mm -hmm. approached with the care that Buffy was. And there are still a number of shows, especially in genre television, that don't always approach women with that holistic eye and that's all, that, that care, but there are other shows now. And, yeah. and it's revealing of other flaws within Joss's approach to character, the fact that we have these other good examples. Right. I think... One of the things that makes Buffy so good is how economical it is with its characters in general. I mean, it really, and I think this is part of the network TV formula too. It sticks to a, a small-ish core group of mm -hmm. six to eight peoples in any given time with a smattering of baddies, a smattering of these like very funny, pretty well-drawn supporting characters like Harmony, like um, Darla, that sort of thing. And the Nevers is so just has so many characters. I think there are twelve series regulars. Yeah, and maybe something more like than that. that. And it's because the plotting is so obtuse and puzzle boxy so far. You just have it. Really, I think the biggest thing for me is it just it felt like he was really filling up space with things and people more so than actually crafting. A, a more cohesive world like the the pilot episode of Buffy you know everything about Sunnyvale right away like, yeah and Buffy I, they often talk about like Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a perfect title because you know from hearing the words Buffy the Vampire Slayer what that show is exactly Her name is Buffy which tells you things and she slays vampires it's violent that's we're getting horror stuff like okay we know what the show is just by hearing that phrase and like the Nevers is a show that like, I don't think we know what The Nevers is maybe until the very end of the pilot. And even then, I'm not sure that I fully know what the show is yet. I don't think I could fully explain that concept to you still. Like, and I took like furious notes during this and like it, I just, I, I don't think I could linearly ex describe to you what's happening after two episodes still. No. Uh, 
And at the same time, though, I had a lot of fun watching it. Like, yeah. Um, oh, have that, we? We should say that both of us thought this was a very entertaining show. Yeah. So far. Two episodes have come out so far. We have both seen both episodes. I am going to watch the other four. I think <laughs> I'm. I'm there with you too. Like, this definitely is not. It's not the best Whedon show I've ever seen. But mm-hmm. I mean, you kind of have to remember that the first season of Buffy takes a while to get going too. Yeah. Even, I mean, yeah. Angel, it takes a, maybe a full season almost to get going. Yeah. And honestly, the most shocking thing about The Nevers is that it's on HBO to me. Because mm-hmm. I think the thing that this really revealed to me about Whedon as a creator is that he is kind of a campy network guy like that's yeah. kind of what he does and even think about like the avengers which is probably his biggest feature success um as far as like universally loved is kind of a for all audiences a little camp a little silly um yeah thing. i mean i i think you could make a pretty strong argument that whedon's vision for the avengers basically created the marvel template like you couldn't mm-hmm. have guardians you couldn't have all these kind of wacky, cartoony, borderline kids movies with, you know, deep sentimentality in them without Whedon's imprint all over it. Yeah, Because that's, I mean, that's his bread and butter. Yeah. It feels like a show from the aughts in a lot of ways. Yeah. And in the aughts, HBO was not making genre television. So Mm -hmm. like, that's a very strange disconnect. And like, the energy is really like fun and silly and then something violent will happen or you'll see boobs and it's like, oh yeah, there's on HBO and this is so funny that they're going to this level of violence because I don't think it matches the rest of the show. Um, And it's a very strange beast Um, and knowing, well, we don't know, assuming that there were problems between what Joss was trying to do and what HBO thought they were getting and what HBO had coming in and what HBO wanted that to be. Um, it's so weird to me that the show exists and exists yeah. on HBO with HBO money in the year 2021. Yeah, and the way that they're splitting up, um, if I'm understanding this correctly, they're doing a first half season of six episodes that mm-hmm. is that's the Joss contributed episodes. Right. And then a second six season or six episode half season that is completely created by the new showrunner, Philippa Goslett. Mm-hmm. And it'll be interesting to see whether Goslett's vision for the show is a lot more, if it's sort of like a Joss facsimile or if it's kind of more going to be more thronesy. There's a silliness to the concept. Uh, yeah. There's the show features um, people with superpowers, a la the X-Men or numerous other properties mm-hmm. like that. Um, and some of those powers are goofy and in a way that I appreciate, but yeah, I not only so far you can move away from that. I think that's one of my big problems with the shows is how conceptually not sketched out a lot of these powers are like I could not tell you after two episodes exactly what Amalia True's powers are excuse my sirens outside by the way guys I live between two hospitals um we may edit this out or not we might not edit this out um but like Amalia it's tough um to have your central protagonist be such an enigma 
Mm-hmm. And she, she is. That's sort of what I was getting at. I'm like, I don't think she should work. Her powers are confusing. Her demeanor is not particularly like grab honorable um, because she is often um, somewhat narratively and because of her powers and somewhat narratively because of the narrative structure several steps ahead of us. Um, and it, it, I'm shocked that I like her. I really am, yeah. but I do. And I can't even explain why I do beyond like, I think it's well acted. Yeah, I think the acting will do a lot and say what you will about Whedon. He's very good at finding actors who can fit into his universe very well. It's um, true. It's like, true. I don't think Sarah, I love Sarah Michelle Geller. like Lord strike me down for saying this, but I don't think she's ever been quite as compelling in anything else. No, except Buffy for- was. And, and at the same time, I think that, I don't know that anyone else could have played Buffy. Like, no, absolutely not. It was this weird magic and every single world, like Captain Malcolm Reynolds and Nathan Fillion. I like, mm-hmm. I don't think Nathan Fillion is charming. I God, don't strike me down. No. Uh, but he's <laughs> charming in Firefly. It works. The character works. And like it, it he's, there's so many times where you've gotten this actor Joss Whedon combo that's just like. It's magic. Yeah. I mean, and he's great with, like, David Boreanaz, honestly, I would also put in that category, too, mm-hmm. though. I think, I mean, he's, I like Bones, I'm a Bones head, and I think he, he's perfectly charming in that, but he's so good at giving just this, like, what could be a very stock, like, brooding loner type. Yep. A lot of, pardon the pun, soul um, for to his character. Yeah, so. and it's it's also very telling that within that dynamic is part of what's problematic about Joss Whedon like it's so maybe we can get into that I think there there are two sides of this there's what's on the screen in the nevers Mm -hmm. and then there's sort of background stuff so talking about the nevers like I I said earlier it's everything that's good and everything that's bad about Joss Whedon part of that badness is I think the way that the show the show has people of color in it um they are all pretty minor yeah and they're all very like archetypey feeling um yeah one of the prominent black male characters is like this healer guy who has only shown up minor spoilers to heal the lead and yeah not do anything else maybe he will but like that feeling's very there meanwhile um i think the part of firefly that is aged the worst and wasn't ever good in the first place is that everyone's running around speaking chinese without chinese people there and we meet a little white girl who speaks a bunch of foreign languages and very early on yeah. in the show um all of that stuff is really in the mix um and there's sex work in the show that like does seem maybe to be a little bit better than some of the ways it was talked about on firefly but i don't yeah trust him and uh, i have never seen dollhouse um i think that's i guess i actually haven't seen firefly either beyond an episode or two but is sex work the focal point of dollhouse not explicitly but yes so like the premise of dollhouse is that these people voluntarily become these i can't remember what they're called but these dolls who like can Mm -hmm. have different personalities imprinted on their body and they are hired out by very rich people to do not all sexy stuff but like just like sex uh, can be in the mix yeah it's like an like an all-purpose escorting kind of thing yes and it's it's very exploitative part of the story of dollhouse is the ways that this is and is not exploitative despite any amount of consent that happened and um 
it's not handled well in Dollhouse because it, you can tell me that you think these people are being exploited, but you're also asking me to come along on their fun jobs. So right. it's, um, I don't think it's as bad as that, but I don't know that I can say for sure yet. Um, we're we're going to take a quick break and we will be right back. And we're back. Yeah, I mean, so the thing I would say overall is that the things that have not always been great about Joss's work continue to not be great. So far, pregnancy hasn't been a plot point in terms of a woman's value, but maybe yeah. it's coming. Like, um, but I think the real power that stretches over the whole show regardless of its quality is the creator himself and yeah. what we now know about him slash maybe always should have known about him yeah th it's been sort of a slow burn because I remember back in I guess right in 2017 late 2017 at the height of the big initial me too wave Joss Whedon's wife came out with this very well ex-wife at the time Kai Cole mm -hmm. um came out with this very well-worded letter about how abusive he was and yes. how his feminist values were basically a cover-up for extremely toxic onset and private behavior. Right. And like even going back to Angel, when Charisma Carpenter, who played mm -hmm. Cordelia on the show, left Angel, all of the facts of the case were basically available to us. We know yeah. she got pregnant. We know the pregnancy on the show was very strange. We know the character who was super important was suddenly not acting like herself and then off the show. Like all of that was known. And in that moment, I can say myself, I was a teenager, but like watching as a fan, like didn't feel good. It felt mm -hmm. a little weird, but like didn't know exactly what to make of it beyond like, I feel like this was a bad narrative choice. Um, so... I think what Joss Whedon demonstrates, and especially what is happening now, is there's just sort of multi-layered thing happening with Hollywood creators, especially, but kind of across the country, where like Me Too happened, and we had this reckoning about sexual harassment, but it was just about sexual harassment. <laughs> like, it was just about women being made to feel uncomfortable in their workplace and or explicitly harassed, raped, etc. And like so many people's names popped up, but like it didn't stick because it wasn't about sex. Mm -mm. And then as we've been going through a larger racial reckoning as a country, um, the idea of this racism, people, we lost people for racism. Like <laughs> um, that makes it sound like we needed them. But like people mm -hmm. sort of went through this racial reckoning and Joss did take some heat during that process. Yeah. Like I think rightly um, the way that people of color have A, not existed or B, not been important to his television has mm -hmm. been discussed issue. and should be discussed. Yeah. Um, and you know that we got a little bit of this Ray Fisher conflict, which I think is very complicated. Yes. Um, but then now I feel like we've arrived at a place where like people who are just assholes, which is everywhere in this industry, are finally getting their comeuppance. And I think at his heart, the real sin of Joss Whedon is that he is an asshole. Yeah, absolutely. I think the Fisher, the Fisher allegations, I have not 
I have I have a very surface level understanding of that I guess just because I this sounds bad I just wasn't as involved with the property and didn't really know like what the results looked like on screen so I just I I read about it I was I was like yes like Fisher absolutely should be speaking out about what he should be speaking out about and I think what happened with him that got kind of lost in the shuffle and has some things to do with the fact that he is black and when mm. and that's the lens that which through which people were looking at it is that like the the primary example i'm going to start over um, the character went through this transformation as all the characters from the Snyder version of the Justice League to the Whedon version did and because of the race of the character problematic elements percolated to the surface, whether that was the character not being a central story figure anymore, which is a problem. Or um, there was a big argument described in the Hollywood Reporter piece about um, in the Teen Titans cartoon, Cyborg says booyah as a catchphrase. Yes. And how Ray Fisher like felt uncomfortable being like the only person to say any catchphrase in the movie as a black man and how that was top down ignored as a concern. But like the heart of his problem with Whedon, Whedon made the rewrites, but I don't think, and Whedon in his Whedon way as he's done throughout his career was not sensitive to race, but like then he was a dick about it. I think that was the heart of the whole issue. And then you saw this whole Warner Brothers investigation of it. The conclusion was there was no racial animus like that somehow meant made everything okay. Like if Joss Whedon was not intentionally being racist, the fact that he was being an asshole to actors on his set was okay. And I'm very happy that um, Charisma Carpenter sort of, I think, saw in Ray Fisher's story, her story, that it was that like, I mean, sexism is a factor, racism is a factor, but like they were able to connect on that this person was disrespectful to us and wielded power in a really abusive way to all of us. Mm -hmm. Um, And that has to be known. And so it is really gratifying to sort of see we're not giving Joss a pass because he's this feminist icon or because he's not trying to be racist. Um, The fact of the matter is he is unacceptable to people in the way he engages with the people he works with and that has to be weeded out the one of the really dark allegations against him that really chilled me was michelle trachtenberg's story Mm -hmm. about how i guess she was 15 when buffy filmed and someone on set said to her that joss wasn't allowed to be alone in the room with her which is upsetting very upsetting those are a a simple sentence that says an essay like yeah it's um the thing i kept thinking about as these buffy things both michelle trachtenberg and charisma carpenter is like as a series regular on a television show you're not all powerful but you have some amount of power and like michelle was 15 so like had no capacity to wield the power on her own and needed people to be wielding it for her and it seems there was some element of trying to protect her without actually trying to address the situation but like charisma carpenter was the second lead of angel she had power yeah and even then he found every chance he could to put her down to make sure she knew the pecking order and then cut her out when she did something he didn't like so what was he doing to the people who didn't have power yeah 
um, which all the uh, all of his assistants I can't imagine all of like lower level writers and it's interesting because he has this like cabal sounds so dark because I don't want to like I don't know anything bad about any of them um of writers who have sort of followed him throughout all these different yes. projects um but like must have been also privy to some of this stuff and it's it's bleak to think about beyond the people who have the power to push back and the um, platform to now tell their story, who was ignored and who else was sort of abused along the way. Yeah, I, I can only imagine that there are going to be more PA stories, more crew stories, more writer's room stories about all this as time goes on. Mm -hmm. um, but I also think it's important to not make any assumptions about right. who knew what or when they knew it. Um, full <laughs> disclosure, um, I have worked with one of Joss's brothers mm -hmm. who like there was, who, who has worked with Joss in the past. Um, and there was this weird like energy going towards Jed Whedon and Zach Whedon are two television writers who are brothers of Joss Whedon um, towards them either because uh, they knew Joss or because they're his brother. And like this assumption that them or Jane Esmondson, one of his longtime collaborators or Douglas Petrie, Jane Esmondson and Douglas Petrie are both on the nevers, like mm -hmm. that these people must've known something. These people must've been uh, allowing this to happen. And like, I think it's not fair to make any assumption about yeah. them. Um, but <laughs> I think it is fair to assume that there are people who haven't gotten a chance to tell their story yet. And to say kind of categorically, like we don't need Joss Whedon to be making television anymore. And it's clear that he doesn't respect people enough to wield that bubble of power. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. So how, how do you think the Nevers can exist on its own? And I guess, how can we like, fix it going forward it's i mean i think there's an easy one there that having joss gone will yeah. at least allow the property to stand on its own terms knowing what i know now about joss i would not have watched this show if he had not already left it mm -hmm. i don't know if that would have changed in the future and i don't even know that's 100 percent fair because like i said other people contributed to it right. and deserve their jobs and to have their work recognized but it is good <laughs> that he is not on anymore um and the circumstances of that are unclear there's a lot of i think hollywood pr speak that can mean any number of things in the mix um hbo has said that they didn't get any complaints about whedon's conduct on the nevers right which That's... you know how do we trust these big companies to do their own internal investigation. And right, anyway. like maybe who's the PA on the Nevers that maybe was getting jerked around. And right. also there's the reality that uh, the people who are on the show are either not big enough stars to be wielding power or almost like established enough that like, I don't need the Nevers. Like, yeah, so that, that's certainly true. I mean, the the two biggest stars or three, I guess three big stars of the show who aren't even the main characters are Olivia Williams, who was already on Dollhouse, kind of knows Joss's yeah. whole shtick at this point. Nick Frost, who exists in his own comedy career outside of this show. And James Norton, who's definitely a who 
to use like who weekly parlance but like <laughs> has been in enough things and it has a recognizable enough face that yeah. he'll be fine after this with or without the show i throw dennis o'hare into that oh um, yeah just as someone course. who like always works but all those people and this is probably true of olivia when she was on dollhouse like there's no point in joss fronting with her like there's no she doesn't need it and like the thing no. that you can see about Charisma Carpenter, like Buffy and Angel were her career at that yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. And Michelle Trachtenberg was being a young actress. Like it's clear the way, and Ray Fisher was, was a total was big break. Yeah. So there's a way that like his targets were so clearly people who like this very specific, like you might have some smidge in thinking that you're important and I wanna make sure that that goes away which tells me that like, I don't think the show has been on long enough for him to start playing that with any of the actors based on their level of fame. And mm -hmm. like, while they were shooting, no one knew who they were. And um, that there probably is a few people who were working on the show that maybe did face this, um, that just haven't come forward yet. Uh, but it is good that he's gone. It is yeah. clear that HBO, like, I, they were shooting it during the pandemic, which is its own set of challenges, but it is clear that it was not a smooth, easy production. Mm -mm. And maybe that was just that it's a period piece with a lot of special effects shot during a pandemic and a million cast members. Yeah. But like, um, I think it's also really likely slash possible that there was some disagreement between Joss and um, the network about what this show was going to be and um, who knows the ways that he was taking his anger out about those disagreements. But good news is he's gone now. He's we gone. Don't have to worry about it. I, I'm going to be very interested to see how Philippa Goslett and the writing team fixes, like to use an example, a character like Malady, who is not working for me at all. A classic so Joss Whedon crazy girl character. Yeah. She's Drusilla. She's it's that. Yeah, it's, and there's no deviation from it. I don't think no. even the acting there is exactly what Juliet Landau was doing on Buffy. And she's had one scene in two episodes where I understood anything she was talking yeah, about. It's just, it's, it's just nonsense for nonsense's sake in a show that already is a lot of nonsense, for lack yes. of a better word. Like, there's just no refinement or clarification of no. any of it so far. And I think obviously with more episodes, that problem will hopefully mitigate itself a little bit. But I think the biggest thing they can do is just chop off four main characters. Yeah. And I think the thing that's so interesting about this show, like quality wise, I think the problems really come down to simple, like, writing yeah. like it's scenes are too long <laughs> like get out of them it's where like these people have all been standing around for five minutes and just talking like please please give me something else which like a different writer is gonna do differently joss loves people standing around talking on yeah. network tv he didn't have the time to let them do it for five minutes now he does philippa hopefully doesn't have that problem um and also one of the nice things about buffy is that it's one of the few extremely high quality action, quote unquote, I guess it's not really sci-fi, but like sort of 
mystery sci-fi hybrid urban fantasy series yeah urban fantasy series that comes from the pre-lost era before everything had to be intentionally obfuscated and stringing people along to keep viewers watching like that monster of the week format and the big bad format works so well for Buffy in a way that I don't know how you can apply that to the the nevers necessarily in its current iteration but I can see a show in which a, a good version of this show that does incorporate at least some of those structural elements to keep things humming along yeah, Pretty but well. at the same time, like, I don't want this show to lose its weird. Like, yeah, I agree. I think I am liking the fact that this uh, show is being given HBO money that doesn't have to be like hoity toity prestige. This is not hoity toity prestige. Yeah. And I'm having fun with that. There is a twist at the end of the first episode that is sort of wildly bonkers to me. And yeah. like, I am excited for that show. Yes, I would, um, I need to see where that thread is going. But I do yeah. think it must be said, though, that in a, I think Game of Thrones set the template that genre does, in a way, equal prestige right now. They're the most high-budget shows that are going. And I think you could argue, mm-hmm. too, that, like, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings also sort of did this, too. But, like, Game of Thrones got so much critical acclaim, so many awards, mm-hmm. that doing a high-budget show like this or... I don't know the upcoming like circle of time and um the tv version of lord of the rings like those are going to be also expected to be critically acclaimed awards contenders and i think the nevers was in a way sort of designed to do that i think what the nevers does that those shows don't with the exception of lord of the rings is like the nevers is a lot of fun like it's silly it's like it is it is humor and and we have real moments of tenderness like multiple times an episode like there's sort of a niceness to it not all the time not all the scenes that like game of thrones didn't have much of in the first season mm, and then no, it, it was the thing they decided made it prestige was how dark and scary yeah. and upsetting everything was and like ran in that direction i don't want this show to run in that direction i am enjoying getting to sit in a show that is allowed to have that budget without having to be grim and serious all the time. They do have a pretty crack cast of actors who are very adept at switching between comedy and drama too. Like I find, I found James Norton, especially like very good in his scenes as Hugo Swan toggling between those two modes. Um, I do have a sneaking suspicion almost that HBO does not want the humor in there. Which is part of the reason why the Joss... I think that is the baby that's going to go out with the bathwater in a way that bums me out. Like I, cause I think that the problems that exist in the show right now, there's a lot of people calling it mediocre in reviews. And I don't actually think that's true. And I don't think, I think it's fair. I don't think it's always good. I do think it's always trying stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I would rate each of these two episodes, a very solid, very washable six out of 10. Yeah, with yeah, the poten- th- a lot of potential for improvement. Yes, especially because I think they've got a strong cast. I think the the my hope moving forward is that if the show we have now is everything that's great about Joss and everything that's bad about Joss, with unfortunately Joss a person who we shouldn't be let running television run television right now, I want to end up with the show that keeps what's good and fun about Joss, even though it's HBO quote unquote yeah. prestige, while 
fleshing out the characters of color and making sure that we're if we're going to have sex work in the show we're doing it respectfully and responsibly and um not getting too up its own butt with banter or crazy talk um and i think that that show like is in here and i hope that that's where we end up um it'll be really interesting to me to see how many other names of the writing staff stick around in this back half of the season um do you know if those scripts are written already or if they're still in development? I don't think so. Okay. Um, I could probably find out, but I, let me see if I can find out. Yeah, I think, I don't know. I mean, I cannot really speak to writerly devotion to Whedon in the room in the same way you probably can. Um, I mean, HBO does have a reputation for paying their writers a lot more than most other studios. So like it would, I mean, it still seems like a pretty sweet gig, all things considered, though these are very, a lot of these people are very established TV writers who have been working for 25 years and probably don't necessarily, they have the resume to actually be able to choose their projects i mean it's a sweet gig for someone like jane espenson to be getting executive producer money Mm -hmm. without having to show run the show yeah her name Um, is all over the credits and i do i know that they tried to background joss in the credits in some way it's real real rough at the end of the first episode yeah when you look at it it's like directed created executive producer yeah it i don't know i mean he just has such a total vision of this this show if this is a factor for you um watching ethically joss will get money as long as the show exists yeah he created it you can't divorce that and arguably, if they want to keep making the show, he, he is owed that money, regardless of how bad a person he is. And yeah. if, that, if that's a deal breaker for you, don't watch the show. But um, it'll be interesting to see how it goes forward. And, I, and like my big thesis statement about Joss and about these things as they happen and as they will continue to happen is that like, especially with television, it takes so many people to create this. And like, I want what is good about this show to keep existing and keep being able to exist for the sake of the actors who I think are very talented. And especially some of these actors who are relative unknowns. And this has the opportunity to be big for their careers for, you know, the writers and the staff who maybe aren't names. Um, I hope they can keep playing along. And like with Buffy and with Angel, like, those things, yes, Angel and Buffy's presence on streaming service is going to send Joss Whedon money, but like it's also sending money to a bunch of other people who are not monsters who right. created something great that can still be enjoyed. Um, and I and I just hope that we don't lose that um, as we figure out how this show evolves and how the industry evolves when with our no longer accepting of horrible assholes. I think that is a perfectly nuanced take. Um and a perfectly nuanced fix for this very complicated, very thorny problem that we find yeah. ourselves in. But I yeah, think if you want to watch the show, watch the show. That's my piece. And honestly, I would recommend at least trying it out if you feel comfortable t- enough to do it. Like it is, it, it's, I think the reviews are 
I think the, every review I have read has been very well written. I think I'm enjoying it a little bit more than sort of like the, what the baseline consensus has been. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you're a person who, for whom fun goes a long way in your television, regardless of quality, it's worth, you'll probably be a little more positive than the reviews. I think it is time for our final segment. Oh, yes. Are you ready? I guess. All right. We are going to play Tear the Community Apart. Uh, are you ready dramatic. to tear our, our sweet community? The rules are simple. I have picked two songs. Okay. Two classics beloved by queers, beautiful allies, everyone. And you're going to tell me which one is better. Okay. Doesn't that sound easy? Yeah. Okay. It's not, but... Your choices today are between two songs by artists more famous for being producers who had ginormous year-defining number one hits in 2014. Which song is better? Happy by Pharrell Williams or Uptown Funk by Mark Ronson featuring Bruno Mars? This is hard. Um, God, both of those songs are so catchy and launched so many YouTube videos of middle-aged people dancing. <laughs> it must be said you are the first person who has played this game who did not off the dome immediately answer one thing or another, which I applaud you for. I think it's Happy is a better song. Interesting choice. I, I'm like thinking through it in my head. Maybe I'm changing my mind. I'm like trying, cause I feel like they both have in common, like a very strong hook chorus that, like that was in yeah, a million commercials. Very sticky. And so I'm trying to like go into the rest of the song and wrap my head around, not just the cultural impact or the like part that gets stuck in your head, but the whole piece. And I, there's something about Happy's verses that I find sort of like, interesting in a way that I don't 100% do about Uptown Funk. Ah, maybe I'm changing my mind. Nope, nope, I'm sticking with Happy. I think Uptown Funk is catchy the whole time, but I think Happy does some more interesting things musically. I think, I think I agree with you. I think we are maybe in the minority of public opinion on this. I'm sure. I think there's something, well, I mean, Happy was literally made for a kid's movie. It's from the Despicable Me 2 soundtrack. Yeah. So there is something very juvenile about it that I think really grates on people. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I also I think, think it's more fun to do than Uptown. If, he, I, if I were going to do one of those two for karaoke, I would do Happy over Uptown Funk, I think. Yeah. And I think like we all heard them a lot from 2014 to probably like 2016 and probably most of us at least myself have not heard it probably in the past two years Mm -hmm. like I can almost I I would bet that if I turned on happy right now having not heard in a while I'd be like you know what this is great in a way that I feel like if I turned on up to bunk I would also think this is great but not have the same like this is way better than I remember it being yeah I mean I guess in the past year we've been locked up and not at 
either CVSs or weddings. <laughs> so like, yep. which to me, those two, those two so- venues are like the perfect place to hear each of those songs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think you made the right choice. Thank you so much. We'll see if America agrees <laughs> after when this episode comes Please out. Don't. But um, well, thank you so much for being here today. Is there Thanks. anything that you'd like to plug, promote? Where can people find you on social media? Um, I tweet more than anything. I'm John X McDonough, M-C-D-O-N-O-U-G-H on Twitter. Uh, you can follow me there for me complaining about politics and sometimes talking about pop culture and uh, watch Why the Last Man coming up on FX. I worked on it and it's going to be great. I don't know when it comes out yet because we don't know, but it'll be on Hulu and you should watch it. Woo! So excited for that. Um, we love a Diane Lane enterprise. I, I, It is like now a great moment of my life that I sat through a sexual harassment training with Diane Lane. Uh, I, a, tr- a, a true dream. And that's yeah. why everyone listening to this podcast should come work in Hollywood right now. So you get to have experiences like that. There's too many people. <laughs> Stay away. You also have to work with assholes. Right. Um, like me, who you can find at Twitter on at FKA Pigs with a Z um, and on Instagram at Drew Haskins, both with Zs instead of Ss. Um, and subscribe to culturepig at substack.com um, for fun cultural musings and writings. And also, uh, please rate, review, like, and subscribe to this podcast. And I have to do this this episode. Big shout out to my creative director and artistic director, John Boone, for doing the logo to this podcast. He is a king of men, and he has a gun in my head right now. So I am going to go log off. But thanks again for being here, John. Thanks. It was fun. And until next episode, guys. Bye. Bye.